Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. Today we look at what the outbreak means for the people of developing countries. The infectious disease crisis is not necessarily going to look to people like that's the thing that's going to kill them because they've so many other problems in the meantime. That's Irish diplomat Sinead Walsh. When the Ebola virus struck in West Africa in 2014, Sinead was Ireland's ambassador to Sierra Leone and Liberia. She was heavily involved in the international effort to contain the virus. The Ebola outbreak in West Africa is spiralling out of control, according to health officials who are warning. And this is largely due to dysfunctional healthcare systems and rampant fear. Afterwards, she co-wrote a book about it all. Getting to Zero depicted a response that was slow to get going and hampered by poor decision-making. Today, Sinead is the EU ambassador to South Sudan, a new, impoverished country still recovering from decades of civil war and scarcely prepared for the new pandemic. Like, we've got two ventilators in South Sudan, for example. You know, we have eight isolation beds in in our clinic. You know, I mean, this is, and, and, and we've got 12 million people. Sinead Walsh, first off, what are the main differences between Ebola and COVID-19? Um, I mean, I think the big differences are that COVID-19 is far more uh, infectious uh, than Ebola. So Ebola was really, it needed, uh, you know, the exchange of bodily fluids. So it primarily um you know, sort of uh, affected people who were looking after others like medical workers or family members. Um, whereas COVID-19, I think one of the things which is so worrying about it, obviously, and and, and taking over uh, the lives of, of so many people around the world, uh, including obviously in Ireland, is the fact that it can be spread through droplets in the air. So so it, it, can, it can affect a lot more people very quickly. I, I think on the positive side, though, COVID-19 is far, far less uh, deadly. So when I was in Sierra Leone in 2014, 2015, working on the Ebola crisis, there were, I mean, there were times in the early months when we were looking at a 90% uh, death rate. That kind of ended up averaging out probably at about 50% in the end. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly you, you were sort of looking at an, an average of, of one in two people dying. Whereas we know, I mean, we don't know, of course, what exactly the fatality rate is for COVID-19. I think the latest numbers are 3.7% or something along those lines, but probably a lot lower because you, you tend to know the people who have died, but you don't tend to know everybody who ever had it uh, because, of, of course, some of it can be quite mild. So the fatality rate is, is certainly less than less than what we can calculate, you know, which is which is really good. I, I think that the, the tricky part, and, and it, it was the same for Ebola, is, is the vulnerability of the individuals that are affected. And, and I suppose in a lot of more developed countries, you're really looking at elderly people. But I think in a country like South Sudan, when, when we think about what vulnerability will mean, you know, if and, and, and assuming when we, we do get this virus, uh, actually, there's going to just be large swathes of the population that would fit into that group of having, you know, kind of pre-existing medical conditions or being very weak. Farmers in South Sudan are trying to save this year's crop and avoid a food shortage for parts of Africa due to huge swarms of locusts. It poses a major problem for South Sudan, which already has over 6 million people or more than half of its population. 
population facing food insecurity. Some farmers have attempted Half to of chase the population of this country uh, is food insecure and needs needs assistance to to literally get through the day in terms of food supply. So you know, just imagine, uh, you know, what what uh, a, a relatively mild virus in one person could do to somebody who who is already really struggling uh, to feed themselves. So so I think when I sort of sit here in in, in Juba and as I say, we we don't have any confirmed cases yet in South Sudan, as far as we know. Um, but uh, we are really, uh, funnily enough, already totally all consumed by this uh, crisis because the fact that it's happening in other countries means that a lot of the flights that would usually come here bringing kind of humanitarian workers, NGO workers, have stopped. Uh, a lot of A lot of staff here working in international organizations are leaving um, because, you know, there's a fear that, you know, kind of, you, well, if you don't leave South Sudan now, you might not be able to leave. What if all the flights close, you know, uh, close down and all this kind of thing? A lot of the same uh, fears that people had during Ebola, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing here as well, a lot of the same uh, panic and hysteria. But for me, the big concern is um, how, how do we prevent uh, you know, how do we keep our humanitarian programs going? How do we keep feeding people? How do we keep, you know, sort of the health system going and in one of the poorest countries in the world, we, even though the virus isn't here yet, that, you know, we're already, you know, losing our ability to do that. And I think, you know, we all just need to also not not look inwardly so much, which is, I think, a lot, a lot of what's happening at the moment. And even in my own office, of course, I'm I'm, I'm, you know, kind of, you know, spending a lot of time looking, thinking about, you know, staff health and what can we do internally and all that kind of thing. But we also, I think, all need to look externally at, at the most vulnerable and say, you know, how can we make sure that this isn't an enormous catastrophe, you know, for for everybody who who may have be impacted in a side in a side effect kind of a way, but in a very serious way. So today, Sinead, we're hearing that many African countries are shutting down travel from Europe in an attempt to stop the spread of the virus. And it's true to say, I think, that it hasn't yet got a grip in Africa overall. But there seems to be a strong feeling that it's only a matter of time uh, before it does so. And the WHO has has been warning of the absolutely devastating impact the disease will have there. How prepared is both South Sudan and and African countries generally for the outbreak, in your view? Um, not not very prepared at all, I would say. I mean, you know yourself, I mean, there's a huge uh, diversity among the African countries and, and South Sudan is is uh, about as bad as it gets uh, in terms of in terms of health systems. We would certainly be at the bottom of that uh, lather there. But we also have to bear in mind that, you know, as far as I know, I, I, I'm not aware that Africa has dealt with uh, an infectious kind of flu-like epidemic before. I mean, I stand to be corrected on that. But when I think about, uh, you know, SARS and, and these these other flus or even these sort of annual flu, I don't remember this affecting Africa. And so you know, the kinds of things you need in your health system in terms of like, we've got two ventilators in South Sudan, for example, you know, I, 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 it's not even, you know, we have eight isolation beds in, in our clinic, you know, I mean, this is, and and we've got 12 million people. So, so there's, there's, there's the fact that the health system is ill-equipped, but there's also the fact that the health system is particularly ill-equipped for a new type of, of respiratory 
disease, which I don't think we have very much experience with in, in Africa at all. You know, there was sort of talk earlier on, oh, maybe it doesn't survive very well in hot countries. You know, maybe maybe Africa will kind of, we were also crossing our fingers and hoping that that was true. But I think uh, I, I think it probably is is just a matter of time. And it's also, you know, and I suppose this is a real factor for Ireland as well, how social people are, how connected people are, how community oriented, you know, the communities around where I live uh, in my part of Africa are, you know, so telling people not to shake hands, telling people not to hug and all these kinds of things is also very kind of counterintuitive in, in very kind of, you know, kind of community based societies. The two ventilators in the entire country is a pretty stark uh, figure, Sinead, and it does seem to underline the importance of uh, social measures um, being key there. But of course, one of the big difficulties um, in working against Ebola in Sierra Leone previously was to win the trust of people there. And uh, for example, uh, Sierra Leoneans had a strong tradition uh, around the burial of their loved ones and didn't respond well to being told they couldn't follow their traditions anymore, uh, even to halt the spread of the disease. So how important in an outbreak is it to listen to people and to work with them rather than simply telling them what to do? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think on Corona, there there is going to need to be a good bit of both. But I think it's about how you sequence it, you know, because for any infectious disease crisis, as I say, there's no... um, you know, one can't just sort of, you know, be politically correct and everybody can't be happy. You know, everybody can't get what they want. We would all like to be out and about. Um, so, so you know, we do need kind of, you know, we need people to, to sort of uh, uh, do what they're told. We all need to do what we're told. But at the same time, that can't happen if we don't understand what that is and why that is in the first place. And I suppose this is where, you know, we're certainly at a disadvantage here. Um, I mean, just just to give you one one kind of statistic which might illustrate it. So a girl in South Sudan today is more likely to die while giving birth than she is to finish school. So just gives you a sense of, you know, the absolute paucity of education here. So when you're starting these programs, I mean, it's difficult enough in Ireland when, you know, the government is coming out with all sorts of instructions for people. And, you know, of course, there's always, you know, sort of some people who don't want to do it. And it's difficult to get everybody on board. This is normal. But just try doing that, um, you know, when the population is mostly illiterate and, and not educated and not used to these sorts of campaigns. So it's just going to need so much more, um, so much more work and so much more time and so much more intensive time with people answering questions and just like we had to do for Ebola, you know, spending hours, you know, with people uh, because, of course, there's so many conspiracy theories. And I think you're always going to get this for every infectious disease crisis. And it's all very familiar, you know, oh, this was made in a lab and this was set out to kill, you know, such and such people and so on. And so and and conspiracy theories, you know, thrive in in, in places with poor education levels. And so, you know, we we need to, um, you know, just just Really, I think as, as we, I suppose, in, in countries like South Sudan kind of begin our our kind of response to this uh, virus or sort of get ready to begin that response, um, I think we need to bear in mind, you know, as you're saying, the lessons from Ebola, you know, the need to listen to people, to answer their questions, to be empathetic, to bear in mind that people are dealing with 
all sorts of stuff. You know, see, he can't just tell people here to stay home. The vast majority of people here, if they have a job, it's a daily labor job. And it doesn't pay you if you don't go to it, quite simply. You know, most people don't work in an office and get a monthly salary and get, you know, leave and all this kind of thing. So, you know, and, and it sort of comes back to the point I was making about how we need to recognize that, you know, in, in countries like this, you know, the infectious disease crisis um, is not necessarily going to look to people like that's the thing that's going to kill them or that's the thing that's going to be a, their next problem because they have so many other problems in the meantime, like severe food insecurity in, in, in so many uh, parts of the country. We have 1.3 million children this year who are severe in severe acute malnutrition, which is, I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost 10% of the population. So, so we need to then somehow find a way to, first of all, keep the humanitarian workers and keep the humanitarian goods coming in and out, despite, you know, all the travel restrictions and flight suspensions and all that kind of thing. And then work with people to help them to, to prevent, you know, and, and not be vulnerable to, to, to the coronavirus, while at the same time trying to help them, you know, try to help address the other issues that they have and, 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 and the two simultaneously, if you know what I mean. So it's, I mean, it's it's pretty daunting. I think. I think the potential implications of, of this virus for all over the world are, are you know, it, it's quite a surreal time um, when we think about it. In, in in probably the poorest country in the world, it's it's a little bit unimaginable at the moment, and we just need to kind of try to take some concrete steps. So funnily enough, just today, um, we've been trying to see if we can get some more uh, COVID-19 tests into the country through our diplomatic bag, uh, because, we, you know, there's a, there's a company in Brussels who will, who, who will sell some uh, to South Sudan, but we can't get them there because of the flight suspensions and different things. So, you know, we're trying to find some, some concrete things that we can do because we only have 500 tests in the country, which is not going to last us five minutes, you know. So, so what are some concrete steps that we can take uh, to, start, to start working on this? Because it's, it's going to be, I would imagine, a long, hard fight once it gets to us. In your book, Sinead, you identified many failings in how the international community responded to Ebola in 2014. Failings of leadership, organisation, prioritisation and empathy. Are you seeing those failings being replicated in response to COVID-19? Um, hmm. Uh, there's certainly there's a lot that's very familiar all right i mean i do feel as though we are seeing stronger leadership from who um i'm i'm kind of biased because the head of emergencies is is an irish guy uh, mike ryan from galway who's extraordinary and i think the fact that he's working on that is is very helpful and, and the director general Dr. Tedros is very active as well, and and he, he kind of knows his stuff from when he used to be Minister of Health in Ethiopia. So I personally see, and again, being being further away from it than I was in those days when it was only affecting us in West Africa. To me, from where I sit, it looks like the WHO leadership is is stronger. Leadership at country level, I think we're all seeing it's varying quite a lot. I think Ireland seems to be doing a lot of the right things. You know, not hesitating to take robust measures and. That's pretty wise, uh, but you, you you know yourself that is is varying a lot uh, around the world. I think on the empathy front, there is definitely still, you know, really big gaps, and I think there's just something very kind of 
you know, there's something about infectious diseases that just brings out also some of the worst in, in people. And when people get very panicked and, and worried about their own sort of physical safety, you know, we've seen obviously kind of, you know, sort of, you know, racism and, and, and different uh, different kinds of, of reactions. So I think, you know, what what we're sort of, you know, it's, it's such an extraordinary disease and it's so different to Ebola in the sense that it's affecting the Western world so much, you know. So when I'm talking to our staff who are sort of half European, half South Sudanese, you know, um, you know, we're, we're sort of, you know, it's this extraordinary situation where so far it's actually the Europeans, uh, you know, who, who may kind of know people who've been affected and that kind of thing. And so it's, it's in a way, it, it sort of brings you, it brings you together. But in a way, if you're not careful, you know, you can end up with sort of, oh, let's blame the Europeans or let's blame the Chinese and so on. Uh, whereas actually we need to, we need to really pull together now kind of more than ever because everybody, uh, everybody is is uh, is vulnerable here. Of course, the key to dealing with any pandemic is ensuring the safety of health workers uh, who, who play such an important role in, in uh, dealing with these type of crises. And many health workers were major casualties in the Ebola outbreak. And what did you learn from this? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's this general point about how if if you don't strengthen your health system, you know, if you don't really as a society prioritise, you know, having a, a robust health system and, you know, paying people properly and equipping, you know, uh, what you need to equip and so on, you will you will pay for that when you get an infectious disease outbreak. I mean, we saw it during Ebola, you know, like Western countries were able to deal, you know, generally pretty well with, you know, some hiccups with, with Ebola. Um, and African countries like Sierra Leone were just absolutely wiped out. And, and, and you know, because we had, you know, these fundamental issues around medicine supply and, you know, how do you get the medicine to the clinics without it getting stolen or expired or, you know, how do you get all your systems there and, and how do you treat your health workers and how do you incentivize them to work in rural areas, all these kind of things. We didn't resolve them. And then we really paid for the fact that we hadn't resolved them. And I think everybody's health system, now that Corona is affecting almost every country, it's going to then kind of highlight, well, what are your vulnerabilities? You know, what are the vulnerabilities in your health system? If you only have two ventilators, well, that's going to become an issue. Uh, you know, if you have, uh, you know, kind of maybe not really worked on, you know, those relationships between, you know, the Ministry of Health sort of advising things and the public actually respecting the Ministry of Health to advise the right thing, you know, all these sorts of things which which go beyond the health system and, and also to how, you know, also to how governance, you know, the relationship between government and society in terms of, you know, do people actually do, uh, you know, what the government advises them to do or do they do the opposite? Do they flee? You know, this was a huge issue in Ebola that there was a big trust deficit and, and people often, uh, you know, thought that the government was was actually out to get them. And so they would they would actually, you know, kind of run away from the response rather than run towards it. So so your, your baseline health system, you know, is, is really going to determine so much of your, you know, how, how Corona affects us. The problem that we have in South Sudan is our baseline health system is so weak that we have to somehow find a way to prevent a lot of the cases in, in it, by, by all the sort of social measures, because we, we simply can't, I mean, we won't be able to save people's lives and we will have 
large swathes of vulnerable people, you know, far more than I think WHO, they say something like 20% of people who get it really may may be vulnerable and, and may need special special ICU, you know, treatment of various things. We don't have that really at all. So so we, we're, we're just going to be in a situation where prevention is going to be everything. Sinead, I think it's fair to say that people in developed countries uh, like Ireland have been genuinely uh, overwhelmed and surprised um, by uh, this disease uh, coming to visit uh, in, in the way that it has and uh, being such a leveller. And of course, uh, in African countries, um, you have been dealing with these types of situations uh, for many, many years. Um, what do you think the legacy of COVID-19 should be in terms of preparedness for outbreaks generally? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's going to sound basic, but just the importance of of strong daily hygiene. I think, you know, those of us who've been working in Africa and, and, and in poor countries for many years, I think we're generally a bit more conscious about hygiene because we're more exposed to, you know, the impacts of the various sort of germs going around and, and kind of day-to-day sicknesses. But I think maybe in, in Western countries, you know, with without such a, a, you know, maybe a focus as we had over, you know, at some, some points in history, we may have really become conscious of of hygiene when we had certain, you know, kind of outbreaks of, you know, TB or or, or the plague or, or whatever, Spanish flu, and then it goes away. And I think now is really an opportunity to really reinforce that because any doctor will tell you, you know, uh, you know, washing your hands won't just help you with COVID-19, it will help you with a wide range of things that could affect you. So at least if that's something that we can, uh, that we can bring with us. But I think there's also some things that, that are more, um, you know, Hopefully, in the best case scenario, this uh, pandemic as it is now will highlight for us, I suppose, you know, the importance of really knowing who's vulnerable, where are they and what support do they need? Because we know that, you know, for say, for example, if in, in a country like Ireland, you know, a lot of the people who will be vulnerable to really being, you know, severely impacted and potentially dying from this are, you know, elderly people, people with certain medical conditions and so on, um, some of whom maybe have, you know, are in a good situation in terms of, of the care that they get and some of whom aren't at all. And so I think this is really one of the, you know, the, the, the things that is really being highlighted at the moment is, you know, are there, for example, elderly people, you know, kind of a bit on their own who are, who are uh, you know, just kind of struggling, who are now, you know, sort of need to be kind of, um, you know, getting getting extra care and extra attention. And then is that something we can we can carry on with us and have that, um, you know, and have that last and also at a, at a slightly more, you know, kind of a global level. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you mentioned the word leveler. And I think this is one of the, you know, this for me is, is the by far the biggest kind of difference in, in terms of experience uh, to Ebola, because Ebola was, you know, primarily in Africa and there was sort of help coming from uh, the West. Um, and, you know, this has kind of started off almost uh, almost the opposite. Um, but at the same time, it does kind of, you know, mean that we may be able to understand each other uh, and what what the other is is going through and, and maybe realize that 
we are not so different as societies as we sometimes think. I mean, we have a lot of this. We're going to have a lot of the same challenges in terms of uh, um, maybe just the degree will vary, but in terms of of the challenges of the of the social distancing, um, and 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 also the you know the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities in our in our healthcare systems and so on. So so there could be uh, in the best case scenario, you know, there could be a bit more kind of mutual understanding between different different kinds of societies after this in, in the best case scenario. I don't even want to think about the worst case scenario. Um, but um, but I think, you know, we, we, we need to just uh, we need to just work really hard so that we don't we don't get there. Sinead, thanks very much. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. 